This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 15. Episode 44. This is Writing Excuses, Rebooting a Career. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Dan. I'm Dong Wan. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm looking for something new. Awesome. <laughs> well, we have got something new for you. We teased this episode all the way back in our very first episode of the year, which for us we recorded 10 minutes ago, but you've had to wait 11 months for it. Thank you for your patience. Um, so, and th- this is something, again, that that came up in an, in an audience question, and I'm... I love this topic because it has happened to me. I'm actually in the middle of it right now. I sincerely hope by the time this airs that everything's stable and wonderful. Uh, but I have been orphaned twice by editors. And let's um, define what orphaned means in orphaned, this context. Okay, in this context, what it means is uh, the editor who acquired my book initially at a given publishing house, I am no longer with that editor. I was moved to a different one. And then that one actually left the publishing house altogether and you know, a year later, and I am currently, as of this recording, do not have an editor at that publisher, which is sad because now the books are not being shepherded and and my own career is a little bit in flux. And so this is something that I've dealt with personally, but I'm not going to answer the question. I'm going to ask the question of Dong Wan, what does an author do when they've had some success, they've had some books come out, and then they either get orphaned or their books stop selling the new series they have come out just doesn't take off or tanks completely. They need to change something. How do you know when you've hit that point, and how do you know what kind of changes to make? I really now talk for fifteen minutes. I, I, I can talk for an hour here. I, I really love this topic because it's a really, really important one. Um, I think the greatest determinant in whether or not a writer is successful in their career is their ability to ride with the tough times, right? That sort of stick with itness, that sort of like ability to just keep going in the face of a lot of setbacks is the thing that I see more often than not how people get to where they want to be, right? Um, I've been in publishing now for 15 years. And, you know, over that time, I've seen people over and over again, who I looked at them, I looked at their sales numbers, I looked at where they were at in in sort of the market, and I was like, ah, they're such a good, nice person, it's too bad their career's over. And then 10 years later, they're New York Times bestsellers, right? Mm-hmm. And I can think of half a dozen people off the top of my head who've been in similar situations, right? So many people we talk about as overnight successes, uh, you know, really spent years and years writing books until something hit it, right? George Martin's a famous example, uh, but, you know, I think the guest host for this year, Victoria Schwab, is another great example of somebody who was writing for a long time before she really blew up in the way that she has. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it takes dedication and hard work and the ability to keep pivoting and keep working with it. Um, and, you know, it's one of my favorite things is to take a writer who's in a position where, not necessarily a bad position, but one where you could be doing more and help them figure out, okay, what's next? How do we reposition this to grow from here? So, um you know, I think there's a lot of different strategies. And I think the thing that's really important is considering what's your brand right now and how do you build on that for the thing that you want to do next, right? So I think Daniel Abraham is a really great example to look at. Um, 
you know, he had a series with Tor that was the Long Price Quartet, which is an absolutely brilliant fantasy series. Um, sales were probably not where everyone wanted them to be because it's a very worthy series, but not necessarily like the most commercial. Like it's not a lot of like big action romp there, right? But the thing about Daniel is he had multiple brands going at once. He was also writing his MLN Hanover, a urban fantasy series, and then you know when. Urban Fantasy started falling off a little bit, he was looking to pivot again. And so at that point, he came to me when I was an editor at Orbit and pitched two different projects at once. The uh, the Dragon's Path, which is an epic fantasy, sort of following in the vein of um, what he was doing at Tor. But then he also was like, hey, we also have this co-written science fiction project with this guy, Ty Frank, and that was uh, uh, what is now The Expanse. Um, and again, that was under yet another pen name. Right. So the thing that Daniel kept doing was he kept writing new things and different things. He was doing it under different names with different brands until one of them just really clicked in and took off. I mean, The Expanse is really one of the big successes um, in science fiction over the past 10 years and, you know, has the big TV show and all these things. And, you know, again, that's somebody who didn't have the kind of commercial success and attention that I think he deserved early in his career but just kept going and kept pivoting and kept trying new things until finally something really clicked in in the way that it did with The Expanse. In 1998, I was working in tech support at Novell, and I I looked at some of the things I'd been doing and realized that within the company, within the industry, my brand was talking to people about the way the software works kind of being an advocate for the product and being educational about it and being entertaining. And I wanted a position in the company where I could keep doing that. And I got one. Uh, I liked the sound of my own voice and, uh, and did a lot of presentations and a lot of traveling as a result of those presentations until I left the company in 2004. In 2008, I started doing writing excuses. Writing excuses has now been running for longer than my entire career at Novell. Hmm. Wow. Okay. I, yeah, I, I was just doing the math as I was looking at the <laughs> spreadsheet. Sorry, this totally came out of left field. The idea that the career that nobody, I say nobody, I don't think very many people are going to look at me and think, oh yeah, that guy who was that software communications person, person back in the 90s and just vanished. Wow. Such a shame his software support career tanked. <laughs> um, no, they're, they're going to remember me for whatever's most recent. And there, were, there was a huge pivot in there from doing software to doing comics. But the skill set of, I know how to stand up in front of people and advocate a thing and, and be educational about it and occasionally be funny and leverage the comic drop of self-deprecatory humor from time to time. Um, that piece of my brand, that piece of my skill set, has stayed with me and continues to serve me well. Uh, as we are having this conversation, um, it is September of 2019. This is airing in November of 2020, and Schlock Mercenary, the, the mega arc, ended yeah, about... Five months ago, if everything went according to plan, and from where I'm sitting right now, I do not know what my career reboot looks like from 2020. I'm coming up on that, and I'm terrified, but I know that the guy who is terrified is also the guy who's rebooted his career before and made good on it. 
There's always more opportunities anytime you find yourself in that spot. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, so our book of the week is one you've already talked about, Dong Wan, is Leviathan Wakes, the first one from The Expanse. Mm-hmm. What can you tell us about that book? Uh, Leviathan Wakes is a really wonderful space opera um, that is examining not necessarily galactic exploration, but uh, the uh, the exploration and colonization of our own solar system. So the whole setup is they don't have interstellar travel yet, but they can travel between the planets somewhat easily. So the political situation is there's the... Earth, and then there's Mars, and they're in conflict and intention over resources. Those resources are specifically being the asteroid belt, uh, which is being mined by both of those great powers. Um, into the middle of this, a new artifact biological weapon has been discovered, which kind of sets the whole uh, system to the brink of war. Um, and, you know, this is a nine book series that is uh, on the cusp of wrapping up right now. And, you know, it's really to my mind, and I am biased because I, I was the editor on the first couple <laughs> books here. So, but, you know, to my mind, it's really one of the most exciting, wonderful, rich character work uh, in a space opera series that I've really ever seen. And I, I could not love this more. The show is also great, but read the books first because they're even better. <laughs> and uh, we did have Daniel and Ty on the show at some point a year or two ago. So if you want to hear them talk about it, you can find that in our archive. And we'll include that in our liner notes. Yes, we totally will. Okay, so I like what Dongwon was saying about, uh, you know, trying new things while still staying true to what you've already been successful with. Um, and I, this is something that I have done. And so just very quickly, um, you know, I, I hit the New York Times bestseller list with the partial series, which is science fiction. And then my next science fiction series, Mirador, really tanked. Like, I cannot overstate how little it sold. Which is a Um, shame, because I love that series. Well, thank you. So do I. Um, It did not click with the audience in the way everyone expected it to. It didn't click for the publisher the way we had hoped it would, to the point that they didn't even bother doing the third book in audio, and I had to buy the rights back from them. Uh, And so as I set out, what am I going to do next? Um, I said, well, I'm going to continue with science fiction, but I'm going to twist it in a new direction. So I started doing middle-grade science fiction, and that's where Zero-G and Dragon Planet and things like that came from. At the same time, because a far bigger success for me has been my thrillers, like I Am Not a Serial Killer, I didn't want to neglect that audience either. And so I'm trying a... This is a, a much more <laughs> risky experiment, but I I wrote a new... I started a new thriller career, essentially, by doing historical thrillers, and that's where Ghost Station came from. 
And so I'm trying these two different paths at the same time and just waiting to see, like you were saying, which one clicks and which one takes off. And it's a lot of work and it's a lot of faith. And you just kind of got to hope that, and maybe, maybe neither of those does and I'll, and I'll, I don't know, come crawling to you at some point and say, Don Juan, help me figure out what to do. So one of the things if that, uh, I also got the, the whole orphaned thing, um, uh, right after, uh, ghost talkers, when I was working on calculating stars, my editor, uh, left and, and I got transferred to another editor who's been wonderful, but it was the process of learning to, to work with her. But the reason that we decided to switch me from doing fantasy to science fiction was that um, we looked at what I'd been doing in short fiction, and I write all over the map in short fiction. My science fiction that's short fiction kind of consistently gets noticed for awards. Um, and the the general thing was maybe you should be writing to your strengths, which appear to be science fiction, uh, so, kind of consistently, that was oops to Hugo's. I mean, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so, um, so anyway. Sometimes but, we have to brag about Mary Robinette because she's <laughs> too modest to do it herself. I, I mean, I only have four Hugo's. <laughs> One of them I got with it's Hugo's, so it any. doesn't count. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> That's actually the only one I've got. <laughs> the one that doesn't count. No, I'm kidding. I, I am I, obviously kidding, or of I would course. not have made of that course, joke. Of but my point being that when people wonder, when they're novelists, natural novelists, and they wonder why to do short fiction, one of the things that it does allow is a faster, easier way to see which of your stories are hitting with audience. Like, just if you are getting more acceptances from your your science fiction, um, that's a thing that's worth noting. You know, so I don't, I didn't actually have to go through as many iterations as mm -hmm. Dan did to figure out, oh, maybe I should be writing some science fiction novels. And Calculating Stars have done significantly better or, than my fantasy. Or, or phrased another way, you did do arguably more iterations than I did, but uh, they yes. were in short fiction, so you were able to do them more quickly and see results more easily. Yes, that, that is arguably accurate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the thing that I just want to point out, uh, following again on what Dan was saying, is the key to so much of this is diversification, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, not putting all of your eggs in one basket. And sometimes that is a genre thing. Sometimes it's a category thing in terms of adult or YA. And sometimes that's even an industry thing, like writing for games and writing for comics and writing for film and TV. You can get that work. But oftentimes it's just also not writing for one publisher, right? Mm -hmm. Having multiple publishers in place. So if you get orphaned at one, even if that's the thing that goes very badly, which it sometimes does, you still have other things in your pocket that you can turn to and emphasize if that's not working there. Then sometimes it takes a couple of years for that cycle out, and then you can pick up with a new contract with a different publisher or a different editor at that publisher. Yeah. But having lots of different things moving at once is often the way to sort of stabilize your career overall. In 2006 at uh, Emerald City Comic Con, uh, Robert Koo, K-H-O-O, uh, uh, talked about the business of webcomics. Uh, this is the guy who uh, went to the Penny Arcade guys before they were big and said, you're leaving a whole bunch of money on the table. And they said, we don't know what money is. Um, and he said, I tell you what, I will work for you for free on the understanding that if at the end of the year I haven't earned for you, 
a marketing guy's salary of $80,000 a year, which you can very comfortably pay me, then I will quit and you don't owe me anything. And they were like, this sounds too good to be true, but but it's probably not a trap. So join us. Um, Robert Koo totally reinvented them. And out of his work grew the Penny Arcade Expo, which was the thing that replaced E3 as the big consumer thing of, of yeah. you know, displaying. But it was huge. And Robert Koo, so I've established his bona fides. He said, never let more than 40% of your income come from one place. Mm-hmm. This and is a- that stuck with me. I'm not very good at it yet, but, but we go over our books. Sandra and I go over our books every year and ask ourselves, what is the thing that will hurt the most if we lose it? How do we build something that will cushion that uh, it, in case, in mm-hmm. case it goes away. Yeah, that's, that is absolutely a thing that they teach you in, in puppet theater as well. Uh, I mean, just in general as a freelancer. And this is a really important thing to understand. If you quit your day job and decide to be a writer full time, you are a freelancer. Mm-hmm. And your publisher is your only client unless you're at multiple publishing houses, unless you're doing hybrid stuff, which in this day and age is a sensible thing. Um, it's a good thing that you can do if you get your backlist back is bring it mm-hmm. out yourself. Um, so remembering that you're a freelancer and, and trying to diversify, like I diversify my income stream, uh, also by teaching. That's one of the ways mm-hmm. that I diversify. It doesn't have to be writing. Um, the, the other thing that I kind of wanted to say, um, about what happens when this, this moment, like I was, I was orphaned by an editor and that handoff was actually very, very smooth, but, um, but it was also because the previous two books had done so poorly um, and and not through my f- fault of my own, um, I think. Uh, obviously, other people have different opinions. But uh, <laughs> but I had uh, the first of those last two books um, had been Of Noble Family, which was the last book in a five book series. And we there is a thing that happens in a series where you have a slow decline in, in numbers. And then the next book. Ghost Talkers, which is actually one of my favorite things that I've written, came out um, and they sent me on tour. And my first day of tour was Election Day of 2016. Everybody's sales tanked, actually. But mine, just like there was, when when I was on tour, the audiences were half the size that they normally were. Everyone looked shell-shocked. Um, it didn't matter, actually, which side of the political spectrum you were on. That period of time was really fraught. And so, you know, yes, obviously my numbers were lower. But what that meant was when we were doing with my my new editor who was working with me on the two new books, when she was looking at acquiring another book after that, there was no incentive to do it until Calculating Stars and Faded Sky came out and did very well. And at that point, um, I realized that my agent was part of my problem because my agent was not advocating for me and was not explaining like the, the narrative of what was going on. So sometimes when you're mid-career and things are not going well, if you're starting to think, oh, I wonder if I should go with a new agent, the advice that I got from a very dear friend who was sitting on the couch with me <laughs> was that when you begin asking yourself that question, you should probably change agents. Mm-hmm. Um, I had my book Extreme Makeover came out the same day uh, Mary Robin and I did a signing together yeah. uh, in Chicago. Actually, the two of us and Wes Chu. 
And so there were three authors and I think maybe five people there yeah. if you count the bookseller. Yeah. And it I was... actually, like, I love Calculating Stars, but I still consider Ghost Talkers my favorite of your books. Same. And I think Extreme Makeover is is the best written thing I've ever done. No one's ever heard of, of you know, either of those books yeah. because they got completely lost. Um, anyway, I assume that there are a few people who are listening this listening to this episode who are in this situation who need to reboot their career. But I and I and I hope that they do. But I suspect that most of our listeners are still looking at this from the from the upcoming side, right? And that's what I really want to tell you what I did not know is that you need to be planning for this already. You yes. need to have all these income streams in place before one of them fails. And which is the lesson that I have very painfully learned and I'm, and you know Five years later, I've managed to build myself back up to the point where I'm or more back, or less okay. Back even further, back even further up from that, we've said, you know, I, I quoted Robert Koo, uh, you know, 40%, don't let any more than 40% come from one place. Do you know how to do the math to find out where your money has come from, is coming mm-hmm. from? If you don't know how to do that yet, learn to do that because if you can get ahead of that, before you start, uh, before you start receiving royalties, before you start getting advances, um, then you are in a position to career plan and to to build your your bug out bag. For- yeah, I'm I'm gonna do a plug for um, for something called youneedabudget.com, um, which if you are like me and not terribly good with numbers. Um, it, it is a very useful way as a freelancer. It's, it's about, you know, it's a, it's a financial planning kind of tracking thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's very, very useful to get a handle on exactly how much you need to make um, and to figure out how to have enough of a nest egg so that if you have a, a period where you have to reboot, um, that you have some money set aside. Yeah, which is a great resource Go for it. Uh, one thing I just want to point out is, you know, as we're talking about 40% of your income coming from different places and all that, remember that your day job can be one of your sources yeah. of income, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. So the people, the clients that I work with who have widely diversified careers in terms of doing adult and middle grade and graphic novels and tie-in work and and film and TV, those generally are the full-time writers, right? Those are the ones who are only writing as their day-to-day job. If people... If you have a day job, it is much more feasible to focus on one thing at a time and really focus on just having your one main series because you have the financial security of that day job, which is why my general advice is, is hang on to that job as long as you can stand it or until your the authoring that you have to do in terms of emails and touring and things like that make having it no longer feasible to do so, right? But then you need to be planning and preparing for that transition by starting that diversification work as early as you can. Yeah. Absolutely. Now we uh, are out of time, though obviously we could talk about this for a long time. Uh, But we do have some homework for you, which is coming from Mary Robinette. One of the things that will happen to you uh, when this happens or in the early part of your career um, is that the imposter syndrome is going to kick up. It's like you you feel uh, you can feel a sense of despair. You can feel like, ah. Um, So here's a weird bit of advice, um, which is that I want you to write a letter to a role model. This role model does not have to be a living person. Um, And explain to them all of the things that you're afraid of and all of the problems that you're struggling with. And then I want you to write a letter from them back to you with the advice that 
that you think that they might give you. The reason I'm suggesting this is that a lot of times you, in fact, know the answer to the problem. Uh, But we are often kinder to someone else than we are to ourselves. So by putting yourself in the shoes of someone who has been through this, I think that it might be a way for you to, um, to access the part of your brain that knows how to handle this. And you do. It's just terrifying. Sounds awesome. So that's been our episode. You are out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. 